morning. Welcome again to Grace Community Church. It is so good to see all of you with us today. John 17, we're going to enter into what's called the high priestly prayer today. We'll be there in just a moment. Have you ever overheard someone praying for you? Have you ever walked into a room maybe where two or more are gathered and they're praying out loud for you? If so, what did you think? Did you say, why are they praying for me? What's wrong with me? Is it so bad that now they've got to start praying for me? Or did you say, I'm so glad they're praying for me. Lord, answer their prayer. You ever walked in on a prayer meeting? Today in John 17, we're going to walk in on Jesus praying. We're going to do it by reading John 17. Now, Jesus meant for us to walk into this prayer because he prayed it out loud in front of his disciples, and he knew they would record it, so he knew we would be reading this. As we read and hear what Jesus prayed, I hope we'll find ourselves asking God to answer the prayer of Jesus. I hope we'll find ourselves praying for the same things that Jesus prayed for in John 17. We need to see Jesus, first of all. We're going to be for several weeks in John 17, but starting out, we just need to see Jesus praying. We need the vision of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in prayer. We certainly need to understand what he prayed, but we need to see. We're going to get both in this chapter, the vision and the words of Jesus' prayer. Now here at Grace, if you're new today visiting, I've already met some folks who are visiting, we've been seeing and hearing and believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God all through the Gospel of John now. About a year we've been here. The past seven weeks we've been in John 14, 15, and 16 in what's called the farewell discourse, and we've been hearing Jesus prepare his disciples for his departure. There were seven messages there that we pulled out to the disciples and therefore to the church from John chapter 17, or 14, 15, and 16. Now we're in John chapter 17, and we're going to spend five or so weeks in the high priestly prayer, and we're going to hear Jesus pray for himself. That's where we'll start today. We're going to hear Jesus pray for his disciples, the immediate disciples right around him on that night. And we're going to hear Jesus pray for his church, which is everyone who believed in him through the word of the, of the apostles. So today, the first part of the prayer in John 17, Jesus is praying for and about himself and his relationship with God the Father. And we want to see this. If you'll stand with me in honor of God's word, I'll read the first five verses. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, 
glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. This is God's word for us today. You may be seated. Now the conversation has shifted and the communication has changed directions. We've gone from Jesus talking to the disciples to now Jesus looking up and praying to the Father. As I said in chapters 14 through 16, Jesus had been looking right into the eyes of 11 troubled disciples and he told them to take heart. He said, I'm going to return and we'll be together. Love me and obey me until I come. Love one another. He told them that he was going to give them the Holy Spirit to help them, that they were to abide in him, that they could ask the Father anything in his name and the Father would grant it. And he said, in the world you're going to have tribulation, but take heart for I have overcome the world. He's looking into the eyes of these 11 troubled disciples. Now, in chapter 17, verse 1, he lifts his eyes to heaven and he looks to the Father. This is our vision of Jesus. It's a vision of Jesus praying. We're beholding him when we see him lift his eyes to heaven. We're we're seeing him who is full of grace and truth, as John said at the beginning. We see glory in his lifted up face, the glory of God in his face. The Greeks in the Gospel of John who were seeking after God with the nation of Israel came to the disciple of Philip and they said, we want to see Jesus. Well, here he is and he's praying. When we first walk in on Jesus praying and we overhear his prayer, we see that he's not praying for us. He's not praying about us at the beginning. He's praying to his Father. He's praying about himself. He's praying about his relationship to the Father. Granted, we find ourselves in the first part of this prayer but only as we are included. We're being included in this eternal, redemptive interaction between God the Father and God the Son by grace. Are we even aware that something is going on in eternity that doesn't revolve around us? That centers on God alone? That's what we see in the first part of the prayer. The disciples are granted the vision because Jesus prayed in front of them. They see him in person. But they see the shift in Jesus' gaze. And they hear the words of the Son of God to his Father. It's a powerful vision. Thankfully, John retained the vision and remembered it so he could write it down, so he could read it. But of course he did because didn't Jesus promise that he would give the helper, the Holy Spirit, who would bring to the remembrance of the disciples everything that Jesus taught them. So of course he wrote this down. Through this John portion of all the scripture, the gospel of John, we step into a very sacred place. The prayer of God, the incarnate son to God, the father. We've stepped into something that is beyond us, 
It's glorious, it's powerful, it's sacred. I was reading this week from a man from the previous century, a pastor, G. Campbell Morgan, and he said, when we come to this chapter, we are at the center of all sanctities, the holy of holies. We are permitted into his presence as Jesus held communion with his father. We're permitted into the very heart and mind and will of Jesus in those overshadowed moments just before the cross. We're allowed in. This is what we see in the first verses of John 17. The, the very mind and heart and will and the desire, the deepest desire of Jesus Christ. We're, we're brought into, allowed to see into the relationship that he had with the Father. We're allowed into the prayer life, the prayer life of Jesus. It's the most holy and sacred place we've entered into when we open this chapter. In these verses, we're not told to do anything directly. We're not commanded in these verses. We're not even, we're not even addressed in these verses. We are let in. We're given a vision. We say, well, if not me, if it's not about me, if I'm not addressed, why bother? Because the vision, what we see of Jesus and what we see in Jesus and what we see of his relationship with the Father, it does include us by grace. And this vision does capture us. And it stirs our affection. I love Jesus more, I think. I love him more standing here today because I have been meditating on this passage this week. Our affections are stirred by what we see here. We're instructed in our minds. We're not, we're not told to do anything, but we're still instructed just by listening to Jesus and watching him. We're spurred on to pray and to actually pursue the things that we hear coming out of the mouth of Jesus Christ, our Savior, right here. So let's look. What do we see about Jesus as we see Jesus in prayer? We see this. First, we see that Jesus wanted the Father's glory. And then we see that Jesus accomplished the Father's will. And then we see that Jesus returned to his own glory. First, Jesus wanted the Father's glory. Verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Listen to that language. It's Father and Son language, but even different than our Father and Son language. It's the, it's the language of divinity. It's the language of God the Son, the Son of God, speaking to God the Father. It is the language of relationship. We should understand that about God. God is not a distant thing or a cosmic power or an impersonal something. God is relational. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit relating to one another. 
Here you have the language of relationship, father and son. And we have the language of purpose and of plan. Here's a word. This is the language of decree. He says, the hour has come. It is a decreed hour. We've heard Jesus refer to the hour before. John opened this way in the second chapter of John. Jesus is beginning his ministry and his mother came to him at a wedding and told him that they were out of wine, expecting him to do something. And Jesus said to her, my hour has not yet come. It's not time for me to do a saving work I've still got some living to do and some ministry. He knew the time, the hour, the decree that God had given him to come and live and to minister before he goes to the cross. John chapter 7. Already controversy is stirred up. But John tells us that no one could arrest Jesus. Why couldn't they arrest Jesus? They knew where he was. They certainly had handcuffs. Why couldn't they arrest Jesus? They couldn't arrest Jesus because his hour had not yet come. By the decree of God, it was not time for him to be arrested. And then we come to John chapter 12, which takes us into the final week of Jesus' life. And that's when he said, the hour has come. And right after he said, the hour has come in John 12, he said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies... It remains alone. It does not bear fruit. He's speaking of himself. He says, this is the hour that I will, as the grain of wheat, fall into the earth and die so that I can bear fruit for God. He's speaking about the cross. The the decreed hour is the hour that Jesus' soul was troubled, he said, and it's the hour of the cross. Obviously, hour is not a reference to 60 minutes. It's an appointed time. It's the time of Christ's glory. It's the time of the Father's glory. And it's the time of that glory coming through the cross, his death. So in this prayer, Jesus is clearly focused on the cross as the way to glory. He's praying in the shadow of the cross. And he desires the glory of God by way of the cross. Jesus didn't say, save me from this hour. He said, glorify your son in this hour. But when he said, glorify your son, he doesn't say, glorify your son for your son's own sake. He does not ask for self-glory. He's speaking of himself, the son, as the second person of the Trinity who has been sent to do a saving work. Glorify him. He said, I'm not asking for self-glory. Jesus was not asking that the Father would stop and subdue all of his enemies who would send him to the cross so that he wouldn't have to go there. He was not asking in that hour that the Father would subject all of his enemies here on earth and set up a kingdom so that Jesus could reign in some kind of earthly glory and power. That's not what he was doing. The request was, Father... This is the hour of the cross. The hour of the cross is here. Get your son, me, your son, the son of God, all the way to the cross to accomplish your saving work so that through the son, the father may be glorified. 
That was the point. This is the deepest, truest desire of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and it is that the Father may be glorified in him through the cross. At this point, we've opened up this prayer of the Son to the Father, and at this point, the the disciples, nor you and I, we, we are not asked to do anything except see. We're not even being addressed. We're supposed to see into Jesus, into his mind and his heart and his will, into his relationship with the Father. And we're supposed to see that Jesus Christ desired more than anything, wanted to the utmost the Father's glory. So look at him. Look at him. He's praying. Look, as best we can see, granted by the Spirit, into his soul. We've been let in to a sacred place. Father, let us see the nature and the trust and the submission and the selfless heart and the love and the resolve and the holiness of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. Let us see what Jesus wanted most, your glory, so that we could want it too. Do you see this? Second thing we see is that Jesus actually accomplished the Father's work. Verses 2 through 4 speak of three things about Jesus. His authority, his submission, and his accomplishment. He says in verse 2 that the Father has given the Son authority over all flesh. Now what that's a reference to is all peoples, all nations. The purpose of this authority, this power over all flesh, is to give eternal life to all whom the Father would give to him. You see the beauty of what's happening in our salvation. The Father is giving to the Son, and then the Son is giving those eternal life. It's another glimpse into the relationship and and in the nature of salvation. We're getting a vision. We're seeing into the relationship of the Father and the Son. God the Father and God the Son are together bringing about our salvation. The Father's not standoffish while the Son does the work. The Son is not reluctantly going. The Father and the Son together are bringing about our salvation as well as the Holy Spirit. John 3, you must be born again. John 16, the Spirit will come and convict us of our sin and of his righteousness and of the judgment to come. All of this, the work of the Father, Son, and the Spirit in our salvation, this is a relationship. We see here the Father, he says in verse 2, the Father choosing those whom he will save, giving them to the Son, and then the Son using his authority. This is what's so powerful. Jesus is given authority over all flesh. And how does he use his authority? He uses his authority to give them, those whom the Father has given him, eternal life. Again, we're right back at the cross. It's at the cross that Jesus secured this eternal life for those whom the Father would give him. The authority of the Son 
was submitted. There's the second thing. We see his authority. We see his submission. The authority of the son was submitted to the purposes of God. Did you play that little game when you were a child? Someone asked the question, if you were the most powerful person in the world, what would you do? No one ever said, as a child, I would lay down my life for the sake of my neighbor. All authority has been given to Jesus. And he submits it to the very purposes of God to give eternal life to all whom the Father has given him by way of the cross. In verse 4, Jesus actually said, I've accomplished that work. I've secured that salvation. How? Because on the cross, Jesus Christ paid the death sentence for our sins. And let me just say, it was not a mere physical death. It was an excruciating physical death. But he paid the penalty for our sin that we would not spiritually die. He removed our sin as a barrier to relationship with God so that we would not eternally die. So that we would not die in separation from God without the knowledge of God. By faith in Jesus, we are granted eternal life, which is extension of it, duration, but it is the life of God in our souls that we might know him. In Jesus' mind, you see, here he is praying to the Father. In Jesus' mind, he says, I've accomplished this work what you've given me to do. In the mind of Jesus, it's already done. Now, in this very moment, he's a few hours before it was done. He's praying before he goes to the cross, but in his mind, he has decided there's his resolve. I will go to the cross for everyone whom you have given me. And he says in John 19, it is finished. It's in this way that the Son brought glory to the Father. That's the nature of, his rela- of the relationship between the Father and the Son. And he shares the nature of our salvation. He said, eternal life, I'm giving eternal life to everyone whom you've given me, and eternal life is to know the only true God, the Father, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's a whole sermon, but I've only got one today. Eternal life is granted so that we may know God in Christ. And eternal life is knowing God in Christ. Now, at this point, we're just supposed to see. We're supposed to see the accomplishment of Jesus. It does include you because he went to the cross for your sin. But he's talking about it in relation to the Father. But when we see the accomplishment of Jesus, it, it, it transforms us. It changes us. It does something to us. Do you have a nagging conscience? Some of you do because you've sinned. Some of you do because you have a personality that's always nagging you. Either way, it's the accomplishment of Jesus on the cross that deals with your nagging conscience. You, by faith in Jesus Christ, by the grace of God, can actually say, this is amazing. You can say this without any arrogance. You can say, because it's only by grace. You can say, my conscience is clean. Who can say that? 
except the person who sees that Jesus has accomplished what God sent him to accomplish. Do you constantly feel like an outsider? Do you feel like a poser? Jesus Christ by the cross brought you in to God himself and to the family of God. And you belong. You're just you're seeing Christ and you're hearing that. The vision, you see, is showing you this. You can come in to the throne of grace and say, you don't even have to start with I don't belong here, though you know you don't. But you say I'm here by the grace of God, by the righteousness of Christ, because he removed my, removed my sin. I'm not a poser. I'm not an outsider. I belong here because he brought me in here. It's accomplished. Just seeing the vision of it. Are you afraid of the future? Jesus accomplished on the cross and the resurrection a future of glory and of hope and of life. And get this. You ready for this? No more struggle with sin. If you've had a good week, that probably didn't mean much to you. But if you had a bad week, you're rejoicing. It's accomplished by Jesus. You see, there's something powerful, isn't there, about vision that comes from the word. The third thing we see, we see that Jesus won the Father's glory. We see that Jesus accomplished the Father's work and plan. The third thing we see is that Jesus returned to his own glory. Verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What is that? That is a request for Jesus to be received back into the glory of the Son of God that he had before the world existed and before he became a man. That's what he's asking for. Receive me back. I came, now I want to come back. Do you know in Philippians chapter 2, it's telling the story of Jesus in a little short, almost poetic way in Philippians 2. And it says that he laid aside. He emptied himself. All of what? Well, we know he didn't empty himself of his godness. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. He laid aside his glory. He, He left this eternal existence with the Father, remaining the Son of God. I'm getting into a mystery. If you start to get overwhelmed, it's okay. We'll just affirm it. He remained fully God, but he took humanity to himself. And when he took humanity to himself, it says in Philippians 2 that he stepped into humility or humiliation. So he left the glory and came and took on humility. Now he's praying I want to go back to the glory. He doesn't say, I want to stop being a human. I read one Bible note this week in a book. I never heard this phrase before. He said, he's not not praying for a de-incarnation. The incarnation was when the Son of God, eternal Son of God, took humanity to himself. Jesus is not praying in this prayer to be received back into glory that he is no longer incarnate, that he is no longer human. 
Jesus is praying that he will now be fully God, fully human, in a resurrected body, back in his glory for eternity, waiting for us to get there and share it with him. That is the prayer. And that now that's how he exists. Hebrews 10 says, always living to make intercession for us. There's our hope right there in that verse. As he's praying to the Father, we get our hope. In this vision of Jesus, we see him desiring God's glory above all things. And we hear him say that he has accomplished this work. It's a few hours ahead, but it's settled. And we know by reading it, he does. He, he endures the cross and pays the penalty and bears the wrath for our sin. It is finished. And then we see that he's glorifying or that he's returning to his own glory and interceding for us. This is our vision. Be thou my vision. Well, there it is. All we're supposed to do to start with is see. And we might say, but what good is seeing? What good is a vision? Give me something to do. Well, the moment you start to do without seeing Christ, it'll be about you. It is clear, it's very clear in the Bible that hearing the word of Christ opens the eyes of the heart to see him. That's the way the Bible, it's the, the language of the Bible. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of Christ. God shines light in the heart to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So it's it, using the Bible language, it's clear that it works this way. Hearing the word of Christ, the spirit uses that to open the eyes of the heart that we might see him, that he is True and good and holy and God. And it is clear in the Bible that when you see Christ with the eyes of the heart, something going on in the soul, that it transforms us. This is the, this is the language of the Bible. John chapter 1, the word became flesh, the eternal existent son of God, eternally existent son of God, became flesh, took humanity to himself. It's the same thing I was saying a moment ago in Philippians 2. Dwelt among us, lived on this earth, and we have seen him. Another translation, we have beheld him. His glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This is, this is the way it works. What good is vision? Because we, because we see Christ with, with the eyes of the heart. Paul said it in 2 Corinthians 3. When we behold the glory of the Lord, like we're, like we're doing today in John chapter 17 as we watch Jesus in his glory pray to the Father for his glory, when we behold the glory of the Lord, we are transformed into that same image of glory from one degree to another. This is the way, this is the language of the Bible, how it works. We have to see him and behold him, which only the Spirit can allow us to do. And we know that from 2 Corinthians 4 again with Paul. He said, God, who said, let light shine in the darkness, there's a reference to creation. God said, let light shine in the darkness. And he does the same thing in our hearts. He comes to a darkened heart and he speaks 
And he says, let light be in that darkened heart. And when God says, let light be in that darkened heart, then he gives us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now that's a mouthful, but that's the way it works. This is the the good of seeing in a vision. And this is what we see when we see Jesus in prayer. We're seeing the word made flesh. We're seeing the grace and the truth. We're seeing the glory of the Lord. We're seeing the glory of God in the uplifted face of the Son of God praying to the Father about the cross and accomplished work and ultimately for his glory. We are transformed by a heart and soul vision of Christ. The word gives vision. When you read your Bible, as we're in John 17 this morning, it is so important to understand the words and how they connect and what the meaning is. Yes, and I've been working this week to try to do that. But the point of that so we can see with the eyes of our heart what's going on here and see our Savior. Because it's a vision of Christ that gets at the deepest soul level of our desires and our resolve. This is what we know. We will be changed. We will become like him when we see him. When God, by his grace, And through his word and his spirit grant us vision. So when we open the Bible, we're seeking understanding so that we can see him. This is what will lead us to faith. This is what will lead us to simple and pure devotion to Christ. This is the power of transformation. When God opens the mind, this is what conforms us to his image. This is what grants us assurance of life to come and of the victory of Christ when we see. And you know what else this does? This leads us to pray. It leads us to pray for the very thing that Jesus prays for, the glory of God. I've been praying this week for you and me. I've been praying this passage. It moved me when I read it to pray that you would have vision. Pray that the Holy Spirit would come into this congregation and every person here today and open up our minds to see Christ like we've not seen him before. I've been praying for vision. And that it would be a vision of Christ. And that in seeing that, I've been asking the Lord, Lord, would you stir in this congregation a a one-voice prayer for your glory among us and through us, that we we would follow our Savior into being able to say, and we've accomplished the work that the Father has given us to do. Receive us into your glory. One real application point for today, it's simply this. Look at Christ. Look at him while he's praying. Walk in and look at Christ while he is praying. I said one. Okay, here's two. Second one. 
Then, respond to what you see. What do you see in this passage? What do you see about your Savior? Take it home and respond in faith to him. Father in heaven.